together in prayer. Lord, we come today to a passage of Scripture that is very sobering. It's one that as we read it, we can begin to really wonder what it must have been like to actually see such a thing take place. And Lord, the same level of fear that gripped the early church, we pray, would be the same holy fear that would grip each one of us. We pray that your word, in its own powerful and life-changing way, would direct us to Christ. And we pray that you would help us to learn from him today, and that your Holy Spirit would teach us through this passage of your word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We're making our way through the gospel, sorry, making our way through the book of Acts, not the gospel Acts, the book of Acts, although some people call uh, the book really is the part two of the gospel of Luke. It's actually both been written by Dr. Luke. We're noticing all that Jesus began to do and accomplish, what he began to teach through his church in carrying out his mission to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. That's what God's doing in the book of Acts. Jesus is working through his people. And we've covered much ground. First chapter, see if you can remember, they remember they tried to replace the position there for Judas to get their leadership in place there for the apostles. And then we remember the day of Pentecost where the Holy Spirit came and there was obviously a great uh, powerful change in the church on that day. The early church then began to bear bold witness of the gospel. And uh, even despite the fact that soon the pushback was, there was persecution and being shown to the early church. And they were under threat. And then we saw in the chapter 4 here, at the end of 4, the church, by the influence of the Holy Spirit, began to exemplify a kind of love, a kind of caring and sharing that was a beautiful thing uh, as, they, as the church continued to grow exponentially. And then we come to chapter 5. Everything has thus far has been smooth sailing, as they say. And then you come to chapter 5. The church is stunned when two of its members, a husband and wife, they drop dead, assuming it was a time in which the church was gathered together, after an incident in which it was, it was called they were lying to the Holy Spirit. Luke records not once but twice the kind of reaction that began to, to, be, to be felt among and reverberate out among the people who saw this happen. You look at verse 5, it says, Great fear came upon all who heard it. And then also in verse 11, And great fear came upon the whole church. By the way, that's the first time the word church appears in the book of Acts. Great fear came upon the whole church, upon all who heard these things. So many questions come to one's mind. What happened is the first question. Second question in my mind, why did it happen, right? Third question is, what do we learn from this account? What are we supposed to take away from this? Now, for your mercy and for the benefit of all of us, I'm going to preach two sermons on this text, okay? So uh, we're not going to be here until 3 o'clock, Lord willing. But I want to start with an overview this morning, a summary of what exactly took place so we have in our minds uh, the, the really sort of an understanding of what exactly transpired on that occasion. 
Then I'd like to reflect on the main characters of this account, in this account. First main character is God. So we'll spend time today talking about what do we learn about God in this text. Next week we're going to look at what do we learn about Satan and what do we learn about church members. So today the focus is on God. And so chapter 5, uh, when we notice that, verse 1 and following, notice that this is another example. And I hope you notice this as you're reading your Bible, that this is another poor example of a chapter division. They're all throughout the scriptures, oftentimes in the New Testament particularly, because there were never such things as chapter divisions when it was originally written. It was just an on-flowing uh, document. And so here we find this is an unfortunate division because why? Well, we'll look at Luke, no doubt, began the account in probably back, I would say, up in maybe 32 is when it really begins, but it definitely begins in 36. You cannot separate out 436 uh, from 5-1 and following. These all should be put together because what he does there is he features in beginning in chapter 4, verse 36, he begins to mention Barnabas and mentions him as a commendable example of someone who was living out the spirit-directed, generous sharing of one's resources. So the example of Barnabas was he took a plot of land he owned, he donated the entire mount, laid it there at the apostles' feet, trusting that they would know as wise church leaders the right way to distribute it to those who really had serious financial need. No one forced him to sell his house or property. This is not a coerced sharing. This is a free will generosity that he chose to do. And notice that no one ever required that you had to bring the full amount of the sale and put it down before the apostles' feet. There's nowhere a requirement of that either. But people chose to do so. Why? Because the generosity of their hearts was in response to the spiritual riches that they have now received in the gospel. And so that brings us to now chapter 5, verse 1. And what's the first word in your translation? But. A contrast, which tells you what? It's verbally linked to what came before. In contrast with Barnabas, with all of his generous, selfless giving as someone who was following the Spirit's lead in knitting together this kind of very tight-knit, loving church family, here we have, but this couple, the man's name is Ananias, his wife's name is Sapphira. But they came and they're clearly not following the lead of the Holy Spirit. They are very much motivated apparently by this desire to see that they noticed that how Barnabas was given such high acclaim and honor. They gave him a name. He's Mr. Encouragement. Here's a guy who we just speak well of him. We give him this title of commendation. And so they see that the church gives honor and respect to Barnabas, and they want that kind of respect shown to them. So they conspired to sell their property. So they were fairly well-to-do, apparently. They could spare the property. And they're going to keep a portion of the proceeds for themselves, but they're going to make it seem like they're giving the full amount. And you'll notice verse 2, 
The words kept back some of the price. That is a very important phrase. That implies that the couple, I believe, beforehand, before they sold the property, I believe they went and talked to the church leadership, the apostles, and they told them in advance that they were going to donate the full amount of whatever we get for the sale of this property. We're bringing it. We're going to lay it before you. You can distribute it as you choose. And they're making it sound like they have hearts that are super generous. And they had made that promise. And here they now, what are they doing? They want their cake and they want to eat it too. You see the same word here in chapter 2, sorry, chapter 5, verse 2, kept back, is the same word that is found in the account of Achan, which was going to be our scripture reading. I chose not to read that because that's a whole other thing. I'll get into it later. But Achan, the person from the sons of Israel, he, he chose to hold back some things he shouldn't have been hanging on to. But it also is a translate word. The Greek word also appears in chapter 2 of Titus, verse 10. It's translated pilfer, which means what? Steal. Take something that's not yours. So clearly this couple is not giving what they promised to give. They want the recognition among the church members. They want to be known as people who are what? Graciously generous, kind, and compassionate in a way that's wonderful. But they're doing it without wanting to make as much of a sacrifice as it may seem. They wanted to appear loving. They wanted to appear charitable while actually remaining selfish. So when Ananias lays a portion of the proceeds of the sale of the property to the, to the feet of the apostles, Peter confronts him about lying to the Holy Spirit. In other words, he's claiming to bring the full amount of the sale, which he had already made a promise that that's what he's going to do, and he only gives a portion of the amount. Peter reminds him, listen, this land, you didn't have to do this. This was your land. You owned it. No one's coerced you to sell this land, but he confronted him about it. He confronted him about being dishonest before God without even a time for explanation, without even a time for Ananias to defend himself. Ananias falls down, collapses. He's dead. They had a quick burial. And in that time, they did not embalm anybody. They just took the body out and they would immediately bury it. Three hours later, I don't know where Sapphira was. That's mysterious to me. Where is she? She knows exactly what's going on, but she's nowhere to be found for three hours. Now, you can be late for church, but that's really late. I don't understand it. But she arrives as the church is gathered there. She doesn't have a clue what just transpired with her husband. So Peter asks her if the amount that Ananias had designated and donated was the actual selling price of the land. He's trying to make sure, now what's your side of the story here? Was that indeed the selling price of the land in its entirety? And she said, absolutely, that is it. In so doing, she revealed that she was complicit in this scheme. She's definitely a player She's definitely involved in the same kind of plotting as was Ananias. 
And Peter questions her as to why in the world would you test the Holy Spirit in the way you just did with your hypocrisy, with your lying, and the deliberate deception which you're bringing to bear before us today. And so Peter then soberly announces that the young man who buried your husband, which is the first time she's heard that, the men who buried your husband, they're going to come and they're about to bury you. And again, before she could say any word of explanation, any kind of appeal, before she could even confess that she'd done something wrong, she collapses and dies right there. Now you could say, well, maybe the one of them may have been a coincidence. You know, maybe he had a heart attack or something. Not two, folks. This is clearly a very sobering text. Here you have two church members. Now, I'm going to allege, and you can disagree with me, I'm going to allege that it's very possible they were believers who were just caught up in this and they realized uh, that they had, um, you know, they had a weakness here. They had an area where they just compromised. They came to church one day. Both of them never came home. They were buried beside each other. Both were disciplined by God. Why is that? In order to prevent the spread of their sin of hypocrisy. Like malignant cancer cells, sin, this kind of sin, has the potential to undermine the unity and the kind of holiness that God was building and was making part of the DNA of his church. And there's no question that these members had sin. That's why I want to walk you through the details of the account. There's no question that they had sinned. And they did so knowingly, they did so deliberately, they did so with a determined effort to cover up their sin. Now, can we identify with them? Absolutely. Have we not all walked that path at some point in your life? You know full well you've sinned, you did it deliberately, and you tried your best not to let it be known. That leads me then to my first point here. What do we learn about God? In this text, let's not just look at the text from a horizontal point of view. It's just Ananias and Sapphira. There's a lot going on in this text, and we want to learn about God and how that learning about God will help our, us as His church learn how to fear Him more and more. First thing I want to say about what we learn about God in this text is clearly the nature of God is taught in a very important way. In verses 3 and 4 of chapter 5, the Bible's clear God is one. We know that from Deuteronomy chapter 6. God is one. We also know that the Bible teaches that this one God eternally exists as three distinct persons God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. All three exist eternally. All three are equal in glory and honor. And the Bible speaks of God, the, uh, sorry, the Bible speaks of the Father as God, Philippians chapter 1, verse 2. The Bible speaks of the Son, Jesus, as God in Titus chapter 2, verse 13, where he talks about looking for the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Very explicit. You can't miss that. 
that Jesus Christ is God. And then lastly, in this text in chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, notice the, the parallel contrast or the parallel phrases. Um, you have lied to the Holy Spirit, verse 3. And then in verse 4, you have lied not to men, but to God. This is one of those wonderful texts of Scripture in which we see the Trinitarian nature of God explained because here we're told and clearly Peter affirms that God the Spirit, Spirit of God is Spirit, sorry, the Holy Spirit is God. Let me say it correctly. What we're learning in this text is the Holy Spirit is God. He is not an impersonal force. He is a person. And this is remarkable assertion from someone who grew up as a Jew in the first century, that is Peter, he is indicating that the Holy Spirit cannot be lied to without some sort of consequence and response on the part of God himself in the form of his Spirit. The Spirit of God is aware of everything that happens. He's truly God. And to lie to the Holy Spirit is to lie to God. Verses 3 and 4. The Spirit of God are one Spirit of God and, sorry, the Holy Spirit and God are one and the same. I'm having a hard time making those distinctions here. From the perspective of Peter, the Spirit of God is the one who had united the church together, right? That was very clear in chapter 4. And these emboldened believers, these empowered believers, were beginning to make a very effective witness for the gospel. And Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit in John 15, verse 26, as the spirit of truth. I think, I think Brother Pat, Pat had mentioned in John 14 also another allusion to the, the Holy Spirit being called the spirit of truth. Or the, or the spirit that speaks truth. The, the spirit who, who guides into the truth. And this would explain why Peter then confronts Ananias and Sapphira regarding their lying here is the spirit of truth. He intends for the people of God to lay aside falsehood, to not make that the kind of way they relate to each other, that they would speak the truth to each other. Why? Because we belong to each other and because we belong to God. And God is a God of truth. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25. God the Spirit loves the truth, but he hates falsehood. He detests deception. Dishonesty and duplicity undermine true fellowship. And this kind of hypocrisy weakens the bonds of unity and oneness, which the Holy Spirit had established with the gospel. So that leads us now to ask some questions of ourselves. Are we trying to be somebody we're not? Does your public life and your private life match up? Are you misleading people like your church family? And in a sense, lying to the Holy Spirit? Because you're trying to present yourself one way when really you're another way? Are you hiding secret sins? Because guess what? There are no such thing as secret sins before the Holy Spirit. He knows everything about what happens in us. 
And if we are carrying on and we're not, are we unmoved by this or unconcerned that these kind of quote unquote secret sins are fully known to God? And we don't really care about that, but all we care about is if someone else might possibly know. Take your hymnal and try to find the hymn 524, if you would. Just take a second. Hymnal 524. I came across an interesting tidbit about Donald Gray Barnhouse, that great pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He was there for many, many years, great gospel preacher. And he made it known to that church, we are never going to, and nor is anyone allowed to, sing the third stanza of the hymn at Calvary. And the reason why is because of Acts chapter 5, <laughs> the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Look at the words. Now I've given to Jesus everything. Now I gladly own him as my king. Now my raptured soul can only sing of Calvary. He was concerned that people might sing that and not be truthful and honest about the intention of their hearts. And so he went on to say this. He says, if God acted in the same way today that he did in the fifth chapter of Acts, you'd have to have a morgue in the basement and a mortician on the church staff. It does sort of beg the question when you hear somebody say something like that, why would God strike down two of the members of that church in the way in which he did? No warning. No warnings. They didn't go through the process of church discipline. If somebody sins against you, go speak to them privately and then go bring two or three witnesses and then bring it to the church. None of that. And so I'm now on to point B in our outline here, and I want just to think, why is God responding this way? Because he's not only a God of truth, as in the spirit of truth, but God also is holy. God is holy. The spirit that indwells the people of God is called the Holy Spirit. See, God is not neutral when it comes to sin. And since God is set apart from sin and all evil, therefore, he detests sin. That's his nature. It's his character. His reaction to sin is always one of holy hatred. And some have struggled to make sense of those passages in the Bible where God brings about sudden and decisive supernatural judgment on the scene immediately, without warning. What are we to make of that? Well, Ananias and Sapphira is one example, Acts 5. Then there's Nadab and Abihu. Have you ever heard of them? Leviticus chapter 10. And a fellow by the name of Uzzah. 1 Chronicles 13. In each, in each of these instances, we're going to go through them in just a second. God responds to sin with immediate justice. Each time there was this careless or intentional compromise of God's holy standards, and God responded with immediate justice. Let's think about this for a second. Nadab and Abihu. Perhaps you want to look in your Bible, page 132 in your pew Bible. 
Leviticus chapter 10. Those pages of your Bible, they're still crisp if you have a real Bible as opposed to electronic. It's the part of that Leviticus is uh, not perhaps the one you've read as much as others. But here in this text where it's talking about how does a holy God dwell among a sinful people? We read about Nadab and Abihu. They were those who were part of the tribe of Levi. They were, part, they were related to uh, Aaron. And uh, as priests, they were offering sacrifices unto God. And they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to the commands that God gave. Look at verse, uh, chapter 10, verse 1 and 2. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed both of these men, and they died before the Lord. Some have wondered, they don't know exactly what it meant to offer unauthorized fire before the Lord. Some have wondered whether these men perhaps were drunk. In other words, they did. If you look at verses 8 and 9 of the same chapter, he talks about don't be don't be drunk. Uh, he talks also about the fact that he obviously did it in a careless way. They did it in a way that which it was irreverent in what they were supposed to do. And both these men and their consecration as priests were instructed with very precise step-by-step, step, this is the proper way to offer a sacrifice. And God had earlier warned them in verse 3. Chapter 10, verse 3, Leviticus. Among those who approach me, I will show myself holy. In the sight of all the people, I will be honored. Somehow these men arrogantly, for some reason, they arrogantly committed treason and defiance against God, and God dispensed to them immediate justice. There's another one, Uzzah. Uzzah was what they call a Kohathite. You say, what in the world is that? Well, he was a member of a group that were specially designated, just like we have ushers to help make sure things are handled properly when it comes to certain functions during our service and the collection of the offering, different things. He was a member of a group of these specially trained men whose responsibilities had to do with the proper procedures for handling the different items that were made up, made up the tabernacle. The tabernacle had all these portable items that were going to be taken and moved to another place and then set up again. So he's part of that team. And Uzzah was one of the men that King David asked and gave responsibility to transport the Ark of the Covenant, which had gotten into the hands of the Philistines. And now it's being returned back. And David's trying to bring it to a place and show some kind of respect and put it in a place of, of uh, nobility and appropriate, uh, uh, holy consecrated place. And so they're bringing it back. And the Ark was constructed now a special way which would indicate that God intended it to be transported a certain way, and that was it had rings on the sides of this ark, this box, with the cherubim leaning over the top, and it had the rings on the sides, which means what? It was to be carried on poles. It was not to be carried by people, you know, six different guys held, holding it with their hands, being as careful as they possibly, no, you don't carry it with your hands, you put it on poles. Why? Because it's, it's a holy, designated as holy unto the Lord. And so, for whatever reason, when transporting this ark, they decided to put it on a wagon being held by two oxen. Sorry, be, being pulled by two oxen. Now, is that a good way to carry it? Yes, in the sense of, well, it's maybe a little heavy, 
So it's convenient to do it that way, but is that the appropriate way to move it? No. It's to be carried with poles, as God had said. And so when the oxen stumbled, so they're lurching down, they're, they're, somehow they're moving, and so the whole ox cart is probably shifting like this. Here comes the ark starting to slip off of it. So what does Uzzah do? Puts his hands up there, tries to keep it from falling. Can you blame him? No. Is it the right thing to do? No. And so we read in 1 Chronicles chapter 13, verse 9. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah, and the Lord struck him down because he had put his hand on the ark. So he died before God. You say, wow, that seems a little severe. Well, God had specifically instructed his people. He had warned them. He told them, if you transport the ark, Numbers chapter 4, verse 15, you must not touch the holy things or those who do, they will die. He had told them. Now, in these instances, I would argue that what we see is God's reaction is in keeping with his holy justice. In each instance here, I've tried to show you, even with Ananias and Sapphira, God did not overreact. Now, some of you probably are pushing back on that statement. You're saying, oh, oh yes, he did. But think about it. God did not overreact. Why? Because he's acting in accordance with his holy character. God never brought about judgment on those who were innocent. Each one of these instances, someone clearly has what? Broken the standards of God. And God is reacting and he's bringing forward justice, kind of judge, just judgment against them. And what's that based on? Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20. One of the key verses you need to understand as part of how this whole um, reaction of the consequences of sin. Ezekiel 18, 20 says, Every... Sorry, the soul that sins shall what? Die. Soul that sins shall die. And as R.C. Sproul says, every sin is a capital offense. Every sin we commit, we deserve to die. But what's the good news of the gospel? Turn with me to Romans chapter 3 real quickly here. I don't have time to expound on this text. I'm just going to read it because it just has such wonderful insight here. We all know we break the standards. We all know that there have been many, many, many sins against God and people have not died. How do we make sense of that? There's such a long list. It's in our lives. It's in the previous generation, the generation before that, and going all the way back to what? Adam and Eve didn't die immediately when they sinned. They did eventually die. Look at Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Jesus, God displayed Jesus publicly as a propitiation, a satisfying sacrifice in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate God's righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins 
previously committed. In other words, all these people have sinned and sinned and sinned. They didn't die immediately. They didn't get immediate justice. Verse 26, For the demonstration I say of his righteousness at the present time, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is their boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. What's he saying here? He's saying that God in his grace has provided out of his love a provision of Christ who himself died for your sin and mine. Jesus was the one who was put to death. God deliberately put him to death. God deliberately placed upon him the wrath of God, the wrath of the Father against the Son. So that what? So that his death would allow us to live. And that he was therefore willing to bear the penalty of our capital offense. He died for us as sinners. Let's never lose sight of that. That's why we're not put to death. Or if we are put to death, we still have hope in Christ. <clears throat> we'll talk more about that in a minute. Letter C. We need to not forget that since the first sin in the Garden of Eden, we have seen so many people, have I said, commit a sin and then they were like, where's, where's the justice? Where is it meted out? The full measure of justice was delayed. And look at chapter 2 of Romans. Just go back a page there, verse 4. The reason we don't see the immediate justice of God is because God is patient. God is long-suffering. Look at verse 4 of Romans 2. Do you think lightly of the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? You see, one of the reasons I think that we are shocked when we read the account of Ananias and Sapphira and, and Nadab and Abihu and we read about Uzzah is because we are so accustomed to God acting in accordance with his patience. <laughs> he is so patient. He is not meeting out justice immediately when we commit sin. The fact that we are not struck down when we willingly defy God's laws is due to the patience of God. So let's not misunderstand God's lack of response in meeting out justice. He chooses to delay justice for what purpose? To give you and to give me time to repent. Ananias and Sapphira were not given time to repent. They got immediate justice. They got consequences that came as a result of their sin. But my friend, God continues to show patience toward you and me. We're still here, aren't we? Don't misinterpret the fact that because you're here, that therefore you're somehow better than somebody else. Just realize that God is showing you patience. And that should lead us to what? To repent. To not be foolishly defying God and trying to live a, a secret life and disinterested in what God thinks or cares about what you're doing, but it's something we should take seriously to heart. Rather than ignoring God's standards, living in sin, ignoring our conscience, let's turn away from our sin. Turn to God in humble contrition and faith. 
Here's a very important point I came across in my reading. One of the reasons that God acted like he did in this passage in Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira, he acted so severely was what? To signal a warning to all of us as to what will occur one day when his full judgment will be carried out on everyone. It's a wake-up call to all of us to say what? There's a day of judgment coming. Everyone someday is going to stand before God. Verse 5 and 6 of Romans 2. Because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to every man according to his deeds. <clears throat> the point is to turn and repent, to come to Christ, to not play games, to not try to somehow be one person among certain people and then be another person and try to be this two-faced kind of hypocrisy. No, no. Be humble, be real before God, and be humble, be real before people. And turn from our sins and, and turn to Christ. He will save you. He will rescue you. You will never find yourself in condemnation. You may be judged, but you will never be in con condemned for your sin. He, will bear it. he has borne it for you on the cross. Lastly, I want to just uh, talk another, one more point here about what do we learn about God? We learn that God is passionate for his glory. God has a passion, a zeal for his own glory. He's very much invested in the honor, his own honor, his own reputation. And God's not going to sit idly by when his church that bears his name is dishonored by its people. I can't help but think of the church of Corinth when it came to this point in my thinking and planning, preparation, here are these members of this church in Corinth who are dishonoring the Lord's Supper, a supper that celebrates their oneness as a family of God, sharing in the same blessings of the same Savior, and therefore they are brothers and sisters who show the love for each other that was in, in keeping with the love shown to them through Jesus Christ and his dying on the cross for them. So you have some members of this church who are just making a mockery of the whole point of the, of the meal. They're getting drunk there. They're feasting and there's people around them who have nothing to eat and they're totally out of control. God's response to that, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. God's response to those individuals is this, verse 30. Many among you in this church, Paul says, are weak some of you have become sick as part of God's discipline for you. And some of you have died. Some of you are asleep, fallen asleep. And then he says in verse 32 of 1 Corinthians 11, we are disciplined by the Lord. That if we act in ways that are defiant of God and we're not willing to repent and live in accordance with what God is calling us, how he's calling us to live, there are times when God says what? I will discipline you in love. I will make you weak. I will make you sick. Sometimes it may lead to your physical death. Doesn't mean you lose your salvation, but it does mean if you're a professor of Christ, a professor, a professing faith in Christ, it means that God's not going to tolerate phony Christians. 
He doesn't, one of the reasons that God has authorized corrective church discipline, loving corrective church discipline in the local church is to spare the members of that church from having to face the judgment of God so that we aren't going to become weak and sick and some of us dying. That's a statement, I'll let it soak that, soak that in for a second, but that's an interesting way of thinking about church discipline. One commentator offered this understanding as to why God would bring about such a severe judgment on the early church. He says, if the hypocrisy and deception was allowed to continue unchallenged, it just kept going on and on, the mission of the church would have been set in the wrong direction. In other words, instead of having a church that's characterized by holiness and true love, an honest engagement of relationships among people who are being real and genuine with each other, the church would what? Become a culture of compromise, dishonesty, deception, fear, fear of man rather than the what? Fear of God. And hence, I'm convinced that one of the things that God wants to teach the church there, taught the church in Acts 5, what he wants to teach us is to walk humbly before God in the fear of God. Let's pray. Again, our Father, as we read this portion of your word, we begin to see how it reveals you to us. You are a God who is holy a God who hates sin, a God who put your own son, Jesus Christ, to death to bear the consequences of our sin, who bore your wrath upon himself because you hate sin and it must be punished. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to not gloss over these truths. Help us, Lord, to realize you have a passion for your own glory. Help us to realize that you are a patient God, that you are not meeting out justice immediately like we deserve. Help us, Lord, in our reflection on this text to truly repent of any known sin that may be secret, that may have been hidden away, that we are trying to somehow put on the impression that we're doing better than we really are. Lord, help us to repent, be willing to admit that, to turn from that sin, and to flee to Christ. To find Christ to be one who is far greater, far more valuable, far more of a treasure to, to love him and to be loved by him than to hang on to whatever sin has gripped our heart. Lord, I pray that you would replace our fear of other people with a true and holy, humble fear of you. And we would not in any way be ashamed to admit our sin, our struggles with certain sin patterns. Help us, Lord, to be willing to admit and be people of integrity and therefore who are being honest and genuine and true and to be willing to do so in a way which we can help each other and pray for each other and build each other up rather than to be hypocrites who face someday maybe even the judgment of God. Work in us, we pray. 
these things for your glory and for our good, we pray. In the name of Christ, amen.